Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast, and I'm extremely excited today because I am going to pull together a roundtable of sorts. We all know you can turn on any cable news channel, uh, so-called news and opinion show, you're going to see Republicans and Democrats sniping at each other. We are not going to do that here. Instead, we have a Republican, we have a Democrat, former Hill staffers, we have Monica Pham who worked for Congressman Mike Honda and Congresswoman Barbara Lee, also for Senator Jack Reed and then Senator Kamala Harris. And we also have Natalie Binkholder, who was also worked for Congressman Mick Mulvaney. So welcome to the two of you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Need to Know podcast. Thanks for having us. Okay, so Monica, I want to start with you. You and I, we have known each other for years now. And we met while we were on the Hill and uh, really found ourselves, I think, working on appropriations together, right? I think that was when you were working for Honda and Lee. Both were appropriators. We found ourselves on appropriations. I think most people see the appropriations committee. The public generally sees the minutia of shutdowns, end-of-year bills, continuing resolutions, border wall fights and abortion fights. But really, there are literally thousands of accounts within appropriations that contain bipartisan agreement. And we worked on that stuff together. Tell us a little bit about your experience on the Hill with bipartisanship. So, Aaron, one of the myths that I think is important to dispel, and there's a lot of misinformation um, out there about Congress, is that there are really strong relationships between members as well as really strong relationships between staffers. Um, we are not, you know, running the halls with jousting sticks with blue or red ends poking each other. Um, in fact, you know, in order to get things across the finish line, we have to work together. And for certain must-pass packages like appropriations, it is highly contingent on the relationships that you form that will get things done. And I think there's a lot of camaraderie built around being in those rooms until three o'clock in the morning in the Capitol, like hammering out language. Um, in a lot of ways, I tell people it's like being in war in the foxhole and only a few people understand how really long and hard and brutal working on the Hill is. Those hours are really killer. And for the most part, I think... One of the things that I really relished about my time on the Hill is that everyone that's working there is genuinely interested in doing the right thing. We just have a difference. Like we differ in the method by which we think we should get there. And, you know, the members had equally strong relationships. And I, you know, love the camaraderie uh, between your boss, Hal Rogers, 
and the chair of the Democratic Appropriations Committee, Nita Lowy, um, they always had a really great affinity for each other, were really cooperative and always, you know, sort of looked out for one another in terms of letting them know what they were working on, getting their input. Um, but I think the same thing was true of every subcommittee on appropriations. Um, there were a lot of things that people thought would be incredibly controversial that actually ended up being quite simple to pass in terms of everyone wanting to do the right thing by their constituents. So at the end of the day, everybody wants to make sure that their programs are funded, they're, pro they're oh, you know, funded to appropriate levels, and that funds are not being misused, abused, or wasted. And I think we can all sort of gather around those principles. So I think it's safe to say that it's still incredibly important to have bipartisanship but the viewpoint from the media is that it's not. And Natalie, you working for Congressman Mick Mulvaney uh, in our, our pre-meeting to this, we talked about his service on the Small Business Committee. And it sounded like that there's pretty much the same dynamic with the Small Business Committee. Tell us about your experience with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Small Business Committee is one of the more bipartisan committees in Congress. In large part because every member has small businesses in their hometown, in their district, um, people that go to their church, that go to their community centers. So everyone knows a small business owner and everyone really wants to help out small business. I mean, it's, it's what drives our economy. Um, it's what employs our friends and neighbors. So on that committee, it was very easy for members, even though they may, you know, fight tooth and nail about something like abortion or, um, about health policy, they can really come together on the issues that affect small businesses. One of the bills we worked on was federal contracting reform. And that might sound boring to a lot of people, but it's really important because a lot of small businesses compete for the contracts that the federal government gives, and those may make or break their future. Um, and that was a bill that was that was passed with significant bipartisan support, was included in a National Defense Authorization Act, but you never saw that on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, right? Um, so it does happen every day. It's just not the things that make the headlines, as, as Monica said. But it is really important because, you know, we built some foundations in the Small Business Committee on issues that translated to working on bigger issues outside of that committee. Um, on defense spending, for example, with someone like Steny Hoyer, um, or informing a caucus about taxations of Americans living abroad with Carolyn Maloney. So it was those foundations that we made in, in sort of a less than sexy committee that translated into some real work later down the road. So this this strikes me, too, that you, you mentioned the, the things that are just not that interesting, I guess, to the American public sometimes are the biggest bipartisan breakthroughs. While you were talking about that, I remember a big issue from the time that I guess we all worked on the Hill was the 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 doc fix, right? The Medicare payments to doctors and how every year, sometimes twice a year, depending on how long the last kick the can down the road bill had been on this, we would have to go back and we would have to fix what would essentially have been a steep cliff in payments to doctors. And quietly, a few years ago, they did a permanent doc fix, and it was a bipartisan piece of legislation. I mean, go ask a doctor about how much that affected their ability to run their essentially small business if they were a private practice, right? 
uh, how important Medicare payments are and how much that helped just bring some stability to the Medicare system rather than having to go back every year and prevent a 30% cliff in Medicare payments from occurring on doctors. That was huge. But who cares about that, right? <laughs> You'd care if it was your doctor that suddenly said, I'm not practicing anymore because I'm not taking a 30% pay cut on Medicare patients. But the fact that it didn't happen uh, isn't really the issue that everybody's like, oh, yes, bipartisanship, we, we, it still exists. Uh, but that was huge a few years ago. And there's numerous examples of that. So I would absolutely agree with you, Aaron. There are a number of examples. Um, for instance, the Land Water Conservation Fund. Every single state in the United States requires funding from that specific pot of money. And every cycle, every appropriation cycle, we would have to reauthorize it. And it was not only just a pain in the tuchus, but, you know, it was something that everyone could agree to. And that was monumental. Um, it was a huge win when we per permanently reauthorized it. Um, but it wasn't something that was splashed on the front of the New York Times or the Washington Post because what is salacious? What is, you know, tantalizing? Um, what is extremely adversarial and makes for, you know, good news, quote unquote, is what sells. And I think this has sort of been the driving factor in a lot of policy discussions. And I think there are folks that are, you know, incredibly wonky and they're a dying breed because, you know, like 340B is not something that everybody knows about or, you know, finds particularly compelling. But it's one of the most, you know, important um, policy pieces in health policy. So, you know, it's difficult for things to be boiled down um, concisely for the American public to find interesting enough. Um, but if you pay attention, if you dig a little bit deeper, I think there are tons of examples of bipartisanship and bipartisan legislation in very large packages. Um, it's just something that the American public doesn't know very much about and should. Well, and to Monica's point about the wonkiness, it's really the staff that does a lot of the in the weeds detailed work. Um, the members agree at the very high level about what the policy direction is going to be, maybe what the top line numbers are going to be, what their, what their top priorities are. But then it's up to the staff to hammer out how does this actually look in legislative language? Where do we have to make trade-offs in order to accomplish these goals? And the staff from, from both sides of the aisle are working together very, very closely. And oftentimes the staff are much closer on what that answer should be than the members are. Um, and so you, you need to have the bipartisanship at the highest levels, but it's also occurring at the staff levels too, which is just as, if not more important sometimes. So Natalie, a question for you, having worked for Mick Mulvaney, who is seen as a pretty contentious member of Congress. Tell us about that dynamic, because you can have people on both sides of the aisle. You can have progressive members who are fighting really passionately for their side people on the right who are passionately fighting for their values and views, you know, there's a persona there. Their constituents expect that persona and they're expecting them to fight for these values. But that seems like it could get in the way of this bipartisan work. So tell us a little bit about that dynamic. 
Yeah, um, certainly my boss didn't always make friends and everything that he did. But I think part of the reason that he was well respected on both sides of the aisle um, was because he was very honest about who he was, what his positions were. And he told you straight, you know, yes or no, I can be with you. I can't be with you on that issue. Um, and even to our own party at times. I mean, there were certainly things he bucked that other Republicans really wanted or supported. Um, and I think members on both sides, they all paid attention when he did that. Um, he was obviously very fiscally conservative. And he was one of a few Republicans who was willing to stand up and say, we spend too much money, but not just... I don't want to cut just the things I like, like I'm that I don't like. I'm willing to cut the things that I like too. You know, I want to cut discretionary spending, but I also want to cut military spending. And that was not a popular position among Republicans, but Democrats paid attention to what he was saying. And so we were able to partner on areas of the defense budget that really might not have been the appropriate spending levels and really did have, have some room to come down. And a lot of times we lost, but sometimes we won. Um, but really at the staff level, I think it was building relationships, not just in the policy areas, but really outside of that too. I mean, people, I think sometimes the, the staff Dell trips or the Hill receptions get a bad rap, um, from people that don't understand, you know, how Congress functions. But I met Monica at a Hill reception and I met Joe Kennedy staffer, who's a close friend on a staff Dell. And these are just places I, I would never have probably crossed paths with Monica or my other friend without these opportunities. And that's how we got to know each other as people on a personal basis. And then because of that personal relationship, we were able to find ways to work together and get our bosses to work together who may not have ever worked together before. Um, on issues, that kind of that kind of real connection and human connection, um, and being able to talk honestly with one another outside of you know whichever team you're fighting for, but just as people, is very very important to achieving legislative success and good legislation for the American people. And just so that our listeners who may not be familiar, staff deals are trips that often to places abroad where a group will get together a group of staffers and take them on that trip. There's also CODELs, which are congressional member trips, where the members will get together and take a trip somewhere. I think often they are perceived as junkets, but they are educational in nature. And really, since the ethics reforms that occurred, what, you know, a, sudden, a dozen years ago, there's some some really strict rules on you know, who could spend money on this, what you can do on these trips and things like that. So they're pretty interesting educational trips. But there's that constituent perception that I want to talk about here. Right. And that's where we were leading to a little bit with with Natalie's question. Right. That you may have a boss that has to portray themselves a certain way, right? Because the constituents are expecting something. But because of that, it kind of sometimes can kind of push members in one direction or another, probably, right? Maybe further to the left or further to the right, because that's what is being expected. And in this age of social media, where you've got to have this persona and branding, you know, how, how is that affecting the way that staffers can work together on the Hill? Or is it? I mean, I think that a lot of close friendships happen 
with people who hold dramatically opposing positions. Um, and I think one of the reasons is because you're never going to fight somebody who doesn't want your turf. Nick Mulvaney is not going to fight me on certain areas of SNAP reform, specifically on expansion. It's going to be people in my own party that are also interested in getting their name first on the legislation or being the number one co-sponsor on something. It's easier to talk with somebody who's not going to steal your language, take your amendment, or possibly cover the same area or portfolio that you do because, you know, being diametrically opposed, you know that they're never going to run into your lane, as it were. But I think at the same time, meaningful change requires a willingness both to disagree with others and to cogently explain your disagreement. And that meaningful change also requires a certain level of optimism. Like, it's not hard to imagine people fighting in the cloakroom. What people don't see are the calls made between the Republican and Democratic cloakroom coming closer and closer to an agreement. And, you know, the staff not only emulates their boss and are representatives of their boss, but they also have a lot of influence in steering their boss towards compromise when it's necessary. And prior to, I would say, like recent times where members fly in and fly out, members used to live in D.C. Their children went to school together. They would have dinners together. And one of my favorite um, stories is of Norm Mineta and Alan Simpson. And a lot of people don't know this, but Norman Netta, um, when he was uh, a child, was interned in the Japanese camps. And he had a Boy Scout troop that he was a part of. And there were no other Boy Scout troops that would come to the Jimboree inside the internment camp except for Alan Simpson's. So the two of them shared a pup tent when they were kids. And then some 30 years later, they come to Congress. Norm is in the House. Um, Simpson is in the Senate, and they start working together on the first bill that helps to apologize for the Japanese internment and what um, Executive Order 90622 uh, by FDR was created. And I think that's a really great example of bipartisanship, but also, you know, rectifying history. And one of the reasons that America is so incredibly um, well-respected and considered a beacon of democracy around the world is our ability to look into our past and say we made a mistake and then find people on both sides of the aisle working towards a solution. Yeah, Monica, you said something I, I was going to say too, which is at the end of the day, um, we all live here, you know? So we work together on the hill and we can like we can disagree, but, and we have a responsibility to represent our constituencies, right? So there's nothing wrong with being pushed to the left or to the right by the people that you represent, because that's your job. Um, but however hard we fight over a particular policy issue, we still live here every day. So we can leave work and we can leave these things at the office because we're probably going to run into the person that we may be fighting about healthcare policy with at the grocery store later that night. Um, or our kids may go to school together. Um, I mean, Washington is our town. So I think as, as people who live and work here, we understand politics permeates everything, but politics isn't everything. 
Um, and it's important that we remember, you know, these are, these are people who are trying to do the right thing. We disagree about the way to accomplish that goal, but we all agree that this needs to be fixed. And at the end of the day, we're people too. Um, we're not just on one team or the other. So that is a really profound, uh, way to put it. And I, I recently, a former member of Congress, I heard say that when he was elected to Congress, he no less a divisive figure than Tom DeLay, who we will all recall, you know, being the hammer, right? And and all of the brinksmanship and 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 you know the tactics that he used, the way that he's remembered of being this divisive character. When he this member was elected, he was told, and the whole freshman class was told by Tom DeLay, live in D.C. Because this is how you're going to meet people from the other side. You're going to be able to work together. Understanding the need to go back home and be in the district. Because, you know, there have been members who lost their seats because they weren't in the district enough. So there's a fine line, probably. And it depends on your constituency. But Tom DeLay was telling them, if you want to make it in this town, you need to live in this town. And Natalie's point of the staff, I think, is sometimes forgotten, right? Because this is the town that they live in, and they're going to run into these people more. If their members are flying back and forth, the staff aren't. Their staff are staying here. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up here. And I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope to have both of you back, and we can, we can have more discussions like this. I'm going to ask the million-dollar question. Uh, well, what's a million dollars anymore? It's a trillion-dollar question. Is our politics broken? Big question. Natalie, I want to start with you. Is our politics broken? Is there any hope? Oh, yes, there's definitely hope. Um, I don't think it's broken. I think I think one of the beautiful things about America is that we are all different. We all have different life experiences. We grew up in different places. We have different education levels, viewpoints, socioeconomic statuses. But America is wonderful because we're all able to express those different viewpoints. And by hearing those different viewpoints, our own viewpoints are made better. You know, engaging in that discourse and debate is is part of what um, makes us American, right? And I don't think politics is broken. It, maybe it's at a crossroads. Maybe it's been influenced um, by media in, in some respects. Um, but you know, my hope is, is that whatever party you're in, um, there, or we want to be in, there's room in both of those tents or maybe more than two tents, um, for your perspectives and your viewpoints. And quite frankly, there has to be right. Um, and it's okay that people disagree inside your party or inside politics in general. It's figuring out, um, how we can come together to solve problems for people uh, is it, that's what's really important. And you're not going to get everything that you want when you solve those problems, but that's probably what's going to make the best outcome for everyday Americans. Um, but no, it's not, it's not broken. It, I'm sure it feels like that a lot to a lot of people, but. So I'm going to agree with Natalie wholeheartedly. And my perspective is, I think, somewhat unique in that my parents are both refugees from Vietnam and they lived in a communist country where there is one party and there's one opinion and that makes for expedited laws. 
But the question that Natalie brings up is whether or not those ideas are pressure tested. Are there opposing views? Are there people that are there to challenge? Are there to say, well, what about this? What about that? Have you thought about, you know, the unintended consequences of this? And sort of the beauty of America is our ability to have divergent views, but to pressure test those beliefs and pressure test those systems to make sure that they're as, you know, sort of staunch as possible. And I remember I had, um, when I first started on the Hill, there was a seminar and the person who was giving the discussion said, legislation isn't supposed to pass easily. It is The system is designed so that bad ideas fail. It has to run through the gauntlet of the committee process, the amendment process, voting on the floor. It takes a very good policy to survive and make its way into law. And I think that natural adversarial um, process is necessary. The problem is when it starts to become personal. And that's where I think we're reaching an inflection point in our system. Our politics isn't broken. I think our ability to relate to each other needs to be examined. And my hope is that post-COVID, people are able to see one another as people. We've all been through this incredibly difficult time together. I think we all have suffered and, you know, sort of had similar challenges. And that's something that, you know, bonds us not only as a nation, but as a world. And my hope is that, you know, with everything that's going on, we see the pendulum swing back and forth. And I think we will see a return to cooperation, bipartisanship, and also hopefully friends, more friends on Congress, more friends on the Hill. Incredibly well said. Well, of course it's well said, because I agree with you. Uh, I think... <laughs> What you say about one party rule, I mean, that's what I tell people. Democracy is not designed to be quick and efficient. It's designed with all of these flaws in the system. Uh, and that can be ugly. And that can be why some, you know, communist countries look at our country and be like, look, do you really want that mess? You know, yes, there's a mess, but it's designed to have this. So if you, if you want one party rule, we have examples of that in other places in the world. And most of the time, Americans don't want that. So, all this does really is excites me for future conversations because there's so many questions brewing in my mind about how we can work together. Is COVID affecting this? How does the media affect this? There's so much we could talk about. I'm going to end this conversation here, though, and just make this the, the teaser for those other times that we will get together. Monica and Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron, for having us. We really appreciate it and look forward to future conversations. Let's do it again soon. <laughs>